Gracious God and Father, we thank you for uh, a time set aside for training uh, in the uh, theology of uh, the Reformation. We thank you that uh, this time has been set apart for that, and we pray we would be teachable and eager to learn and ready to uh, receive uh, what we hear and to think about it and meditate on it and chew on it and go to bed with it and get up with it and think about it some more uh, so that it would uh, create in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. Pray that the Spirit will help me as I teach and will also help those who listen. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're talking about justification by... Uh, uh, tonight, which is the article by which the church stands or falls. But before I actually get into justification, I want to talk about some of the obstacles uh, that keep us from uh, really grasping and, let's say, living in, dwelling in this truth of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And that is this little nemesis called self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is something you were born with and you're never going to get over till you die. It is that pervasive. And so what we're going to do first, and, I, and I'll start this with a quote I heard Jonathan John, not Jonathan, John Gerstner make one time. I don't know if he does it on the videos you're watching. He said, it's not so much your sins that keep you from Christ as it is your damnable good works. He says, your righteousness, your self-righteousness is the biggest barrier. Uh, George Whitfield, when preaching uh, in the uh, Great Awakening and preaching to large crowds, would often say that the last idol of the heart to go is self-justification. Ernest Becker, who was not a Christian, who was an atheist, wrote the book The Denial of Death. He also wrote The Structure of Death. He's pretty obsessed with death. But Becker said it's the strongest drive in a human being. We all have this passion for cosmic significance. Uh, we want to be the hero of our own movie. We want to write our script and be the stars, and so there's a strong desire to be well-liked, to be well-respected, to have a good reputation, and to be a good person. And uh, you could say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's plenty wrong with that when it comes to the gospel. Uh, that can keep you from, what did the Puritans used to say? It's a God's, I mean, the devil's scarecrow to keep you from God's corn. Stuff like that. I haven't thought of that quotation in 30 years. But those things do come up. Okay. So, in talking about this, we want to talk about the fact that because we have turned away from God, and we talked about this last week, with the doctrine of total depravity, we need good news. We need the gospel. And the aim of this class is to convince us of our desperate need for the good news or the gospel. We will not embrace the beauty and glory of the gospel unless we personally 
and existentially understand our deep need and sin. Of course, this applies when we are converted. However, we easily forget the gospel has ongoing application in our lives. As Christians, when we forget that, we are sinners. We also forget the gospel. If the gospel is not electrifying you, if it is not vitalizing you, if it's not melting your heart, if it's not transforming uh, and changing you and moving you to a greater passion and desire to worship, uh, if you are not smitten and overcome by the costliness of the love of Christ, by the depths he was willing to go uh, to save us, then this is a lesson for you. This is one we need. Uh, I'm always reminded of that statement in Luke's Gospel where Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus. Of course, the woman washed his feet and Simon was aghast. And so he talked. Jesus had a conversation with him. But that conversation ended with, he who is forgiven much, what? Loves much. So the more you sense the depth of your sin and the even deeper value and reality of your forgiveness, the more you're motivated uh, to live for Christ. And the more you're approaching what I like to call gospel centrality. Uh, many paths can bring us to understand our ongoing need for the gospel and tonight we're just going to focus on what I think is the most deceptive one and the one that I just, every once in a while I have a dream that I don't do this anymore. But it only takes two conversations with my wife and uh, I'm doing it. So it's, it's like you just can't get out, outside of your skin to stop it. Uh, maybe I do it, I'm more aware that I do it than I ever was but I haven't completely stopped doing it and would love to. Self-justification serves as a good inroad into our need for the gospel. Though we may not struggle with drugs or trying to cheat the IRS, we all justify ourselves as e easily and automatically as we breathe air. We are much like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. We think we have observed, obeyed in all sorts of areas, until Jesus confronts us with the one area that clearly exposes our sin and our great need. Well, let's look at the first uh, um, point, number one. The law is easier said than done. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29, we have an expert in the law very quickly realizes that although he has given the right answer to Jesus' questions, what's going on in Luke 10? He comes and says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus tells him, Love God with all your mind, soul, strength, uh, and heart, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the man replies, This I have done from my youth up. And then Jesus, but, but not being satisfied with that, he keeps talking. And when you keep talking to Jesus, that's usually not good. Because then he says what? Who is my neighbor? And what does Jesus tell us in the story of what? The Samaritan. The good Samaritan. 
And so it seemed easy to be a loving person once you make it sort of like, it's easy to love people who love me. It's easy to love people who are uh, likable and in my world. But the expert in the law realizes he's given the right answer, but it's not easy. For him to live, he would have to love God with all his heart and his neighbor with the intensity that he loved himself. Nobody can love like that. So although he was an expert in the law and he sought to justify himself, he says to Jesus, which I just said, who is my neighbor? Perhaps Jesus will say that it is my friend next door with whom I spend vacations on the beach, my friend who I do not have a hard time loving. But Jesus said, no, this kind of love includes loving the person who despises you. For a Republican, it's loving a Democrat, for heaven's sakes. I mean, that's really hard, isn't it? Huh? And if you're a Democrat, it's loving a conservative Republican, right? So you got to make it real. It's about mercy towards your enemies. Our heart's natural desire is to build a world apart from the gospel. This man knows that the law, or he knows the law, and he gives the correct answer. Love God neighbor. But he knows that he has not kept this law, so he asks, who is my neighbor? Perhaps it's not the people I hate, my mother-in-law or a sinful woman I noticed at the synagogue. He attempts to justify himself so he can be right and perfect before himself, his neighbor, and God. The teacher tries to minimize the requirement of the law because in his heart he knows he's not perfect. Far from it, he has no power to love his enemies. His lack of love is seen even in his treatment of Jesus and his desire to trap him. Self-justification is a characteristic of those who know the law. And so, what does it mean to justify yourself? To justify yourself has something to do with being right or appearing right. It is to use your thoughts, words, or activities to appear good. It is the unbelieving heart's action to build a record before ourselves, others, and God. It is a lifelong effort to think well of yourself. But my old buddy Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary in India, forever, said this. The Christian is one who has forever given up the hope of being able to think of himself as a good man. He is forever a sinner for whom the Son of God had to die because by no other means could he be forgiven. In a sense, we can say that he's given up the effort to be good. That's no longer his aim. He is seeking to do one thing and one thing only. Out of gratitude to pay back some of the unpayable debt to Christ who loved him as a sinner and gave himself for him. And in this new and self-forgetting quest, he finds that which when he sought it directly was uh, forever bound to elude him, the good life. No two motives could be more distinct from one another than these two. Yet it's common, the commonest thing to find them confused. How ready are we to take Christ as our pattern and teacher only, using the words of the gospel and yet never allowing ourselves to face the experience of forgiveness at the foot of the cross? 
the humiliating discovery that so far from being like Jesus, there's literally no hope for us at all except that he has forgiven us. There's a whole universe of moral and psychological difference between saying, Christ is my pattern, and I try, if I try, I can be like him and saying, I'm so far from goodness that Christ had to die for me that I might be forgiven. The one is still in the world of legalism, and its center of attention is the self. The other's in the world of grace, and its center of attention is another to whose love it is our whole and only aim to give ourselves. And so, the opposite, at least in Nubigan's opinion, of this is self-what? Forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness, which is really what humility is. It is losing yourself rather than promoting yourself. Now, we've got to get on a horse here pretty good because we've got material to cover, but I'm not bothered by how much total we get done. It's just first, can you think of examples in your life of justifying yourself? Well, here are some, so I don't have to wait on you. First, defending yourself. Do you ever defend yourself? Do you ever say, it's not my fault? Okay. Uh, boasting. Minimizing the severity of your sin, making excuses, gossiping, or downplaying. Gossiping is just basically rehearsing the uh, failures of others to elevate yourself. Or, or downplaying the requirements of the law. Have you ever said, again, not my fault? So, self-justification is characteristic, a characteristic of Pharisees. In Luke 16, 14 through 15, and 18, 10 through 14, they give a tenth of their income. The Pharisees use something that was good for evil purposes to justify themselves. They are thinking in terms of what other people think. The reason why the Pharisees tithe is that it looked good to other people, not because their hearts were humbled in gratitude. In fact, Luke in chapter 16, verse 14, calls them lovers of money. They fasted, again, the reason to look good in front of other people. And what is what one verbal outworking of their self-justification? Their prayer life. They thank God they were not like other people. Their prayers focused on themselves. Is it only the Pharisees who justify themselves? No. <laughs> It's not. And so, self-justification is a characteristic also of the churches in the book of Revelation. There are seven churches in the first uh, chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, and Jesus commends them. Uh, one, he doesn't commend, but he also brings criticism uh, to the life of the church. But how do you think the church at Sardis acquired its reputation in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 1? By doing outwardly good deeds, by doing things that looked impressive. Now does Jesus consider these deeds in the church, or how does he consider it? He calls them dead, incomplete. 
Why do we seek a reputation? We seek a reputation in order to justify ourselves before God and the world and ourselves. The church at Sardis was busy doing all sorts of things, building a reputation on the things they thought they did well. Living on a reputation is a form of self-justification. Self-justification is living on your reputation, what you have done, how well you are doing things, how good you are, how well you accomplish so many things. The emphasis is always on you and not Christ when you're building a reputation. Where may you be seeking to establish a reputation? You can do just about anything to build a reputation. Having well-behaved children. When I was here the first time, I had three small children. Uh, 1988, I think they were eight, six, and four. The M&Ms, I called them. And I can remember as a pastor, it dawned on me that people watched my children to see, you know, how I managed them, to see how I disciplined them or whatever. And so I always felt, I felt pressure. Now, maybe they weren't watching, but I'm pretty sure they were. But I felt the pressure of it. And so what did I do? I clamped down on them. I was, I was on top of it. And I mean, they had to toe the line. And I remember Pam and I, that, that our two sets of parents, mine and hers, called a meeting, family meeting, brought Pam and I into the room, told us, you're too hard on your children. You know what we did? We died laughing. Because what we said is, we're so far easier on them than you were on us. <laughs> and it's probably true. But... I could see the reason, my, what was my motive for doing that? Reputation. I wanted to look good. I wanted people to think well of me. I wanted, so I was willing to be less than a loving father to build my reputation. I was probably hurting my children in ways I was not aware of just so I would look good. Isn't that awful? Isn't that terrible? And it didn't hit me till a few years later and I was studying material like we're looking at tonight and all of a sudden it dawned on me is I was using my children to build my righteousness. And I wanted people to, well, that's enough of that. But um, having well-behaved children, keeping a clean house, succeeding at your job, homeschooling your children, getting the latest tattoo, getting high-powered job, making tons of money, learning about some intricate subject so that even the intelligent will think you're pretty smart, getting a university degree, going on a missionary trip. In the end, it's quite easy to build a reputation. There's so many avenues to use that we can quite easily get a reputation in some area. It can be done without faith or the Holy Spirit or any dying to ourselves. My old buddy, Paul Tripp, and I, I don't say that lightly, Paul Tripp, every time I read anything by him, it just, I, I tell everybody I have a love-hate relationship with him. Here's what Paul Tripp said. He said, why do any of us get upset or tense when somebody confronts us? 
Why do any of us activate our inner lawyer and rise to our own defense? Why do any of us turn the tables and remind the other person that we are not the only sinner in the room? Why do we argue about the facts or dispute the other person's interpretation? We do all of these things because we are convinced in our hearts that we are more righteous, uh, that, that how we are being portrayed in that moment of confrontation. We are more righteous. Let me read that again. We do all these things because we are convinced in our hearts that we are more righteous than how we are being portrayed in the moment of confrontation. Proud people don't welcome love warning, uh, warning, loving warning, rebuke, confrontation, question criticism, or accountability because they don't feel the need for it. And when they do fail, they're very good at erecting plausible reasons for what they said or did given the stress of the situation and or relationship in which it was done. We're all defense lawyers. And so I, 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 would, I would tell you, try to make it through a day without defending yourself. Now, if there's nobody around you, you might could do that. But, but it's really, I tried it. I, I, somebody challenged me to go a whole week, and I don't think I made it two hours before I was defending myself. I asked my granddaughter when I was in Alabama, I said, what are you going to be when you grow up? And she said, I'm going to be a defense lawyer. And I said, that's wonderful. We're all equipped to do that. You won't even have to go to law school. You can do it. And she's, she's so much like me about that. How does Jesus consider these deeds in the church? Oh, that's the wrong page. Where are we? D, thank you. Self-justification is a characteristic of the most righteous people in the body. I tell you, one of the biggest surprises in my life was to discover what the book of Job was really about. I always thought it was a book about suffering, and there is suffering in the book. Of, I always thought it was a book that sort of explained the devil and his approaching God and God's the mysterious way God allows him to do certain things. The whole book of Job is about self-righteousness. That is exactly what that book is about. And as I was studying it today, again, or just looking over it, um, I was astounded how, um, how much that's true of the book. Because when you look at the latter chapters and the very last chapter, you see what God is up to. Now, he took away the man's whole family, and his wife said, curse God and die. That's a helpmate right there, isn't it? But what are you going to do? What is Job doing in these passages? That is Job 29, 1 to 25, 31, 1 to 40. Well, don't look at that. I'm about to tell you. That all kinds of people respected him. He thought, I must be good. Other people think so. The help he gave to the widows, the poor, the needy, the orphans, the strangers, the victims of violence. The wise advice he gave people. That he does not look lustfully on women. Uh, the way he treated his servants. That he never put his trust in money. That he never gloated over an enemy's misfortune. What is the response of Job's friends to Job's diatribe about how upright he was. They stop talking to him. <laughs> they literally say, uh, it's difficult to talk with some someone who is so righteous. 
And what is God's response to Job? He said, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Isn't that what uh, Adam did in the garden? Because when the buck was being passed, and God confronted Adam with his sin, what did he say? The woman, you, you gave. That's a long, long way past what he first said when he saw her. He he was naming the animals. And he was waiting on God to bring him a wife. And that's why some of the animals have crazy names, don't they? Like hippopotamus and whatever. So he's sitting there looking. And when he sees her, he says, and people read, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, whatever. In the Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't have a way of giving you a voice tone or whatever, but that is emphatic. He was like overcome with joy when he finally saw Eve. You know, one chapter later, he's saying, it's the woman you gave me. That's why I always say, yeah. Yeah, well, man. He did say something close to the word, wow. He did do that. Yeah. Now, why does Job need to repent at the end of the book? Because he does so. What does he do? What's the last thing Job does? He repents and dusts and ashes. He said, I have seen you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the book's done, and God restores to Job what? Everything he's lost. So that whole scenario was about exposing to Job what? What's the book of Jonah about? Which is what? It's self-righteousness. The book of Jonah is about anger and self-righteousness. I mean, it's it's an issue. You could make the point that every book has a section on it. So Job is described in chapter 1 as the greatest man in the East. He's upright. He's blameless. Further, in the midst of many trials, Job responds with faith, faith. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, yet when calamity comes to his own body, we see that Job is much like us. After the sores, Job does not commit extreme violence, theft, or adultery, but he does resort to justifying himself. Job is like all of us. He's self-righteous and arrogant, and we can be upright in many ways, but one thing we all have in common is our deep-seated pride. Job is now fuming. He's going to present his case and explain in detail just how good he is. He's going to list for God all the good things he's done and prove his case. He's going to show God just how righteous he is, but Job has forgotten many things. He has forgotten that everything he has, he has received from God. He has forgotten that the goodness in his life is a gift of God, that the Spirit worked in his life to put his trust in the Lord. Job's life was all of grace, He has forgotten that he is unworthy. God does not answer Job. He sits Job down and says, now listen to this. And Job at the end says, I have no case. I can only repent. I heard about God, but now I've seen him. We are all full of our own self-importance and rightness. And God has to break us. It's at that point when we change from only hearing about God to really seeing who he is. Head knowledge then becomes heart knowledge. And we say, Lord, I have no case. 
The only thing I can do is repent. You see, you can't get to here without seeing here. You cannot do it. Our justification to you will be theoretical. It'll be something outside of you. But you won't really love his righteousness. So our claim to be a Christian is in reality a claim to be a sinner. If we claim we are not sinners, what does 1 John say? It's really bad, isn't it? If we claim to be Christians, we also claim to be sinners. One claim we have to make is to be justified by faith. And that means we are sinners. If you claim to be a Christian, you also have to claim to be a sinner. It's the opposite of a life of self-justification. But there's nothing wrong with admitting we are sinners. It's a healthy thing to admit being a sinner because that is who we are. So we are now owning up to something that is already true. Okay? And then you have this little sheet right here. Right? You see it? Looks like this. Should be in your packet. It's ugly. Excuses. How to be right and look good. I got a PhD in this. I'm just weak, which means it's not really my fault. I was just being honest. Can't you handle the truth? I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to get caught. It made me so angry. I've been treated unfairly. I misunderstood you. You're not as crazy as I thought. I'm just saying what I feel. There's nothing wrong with my feelings. My family was like that. You think I'm bad? You should meet mine. I'm having a bad day or week. I deserve better. I'm tired. It's hot today. I deserve a break. I'm sorry, but you. It's really your fault. I make mistakes, don't we all? I was only kidding. Didn't you get the joke? You misunderstood me. I'm not as bad as that. Nobody is perfect, including you. That's just who I am. I'm a sinner. You'll just have to live with that fact. I think I told Pam about something something about like that the other day. Well, i got to get that right, don't I? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Let's get this over with as quickly as possible. I'm just upset. Can't you see that? The problem is you have no compassion, right? We have personality problem. You're half the problem. We have a communication problem. You're half the problem, you see. So these are our excuses we use. To justify. And I I remember the first time I went through material like this, I kept saying, what's wrong with being right? And uh, a lot, if it's self-righteous, a lot. Now, I think that's about all I'm going to do with this section. So you can get rid of that page and pull up the one on justification by faith because my next intention is sort of to walk through this with you. And what I've tried to do with this is set up, set you up for what I'm about to do. And I think it was, uh, uh, I gotta look for something here. All right. We all know that the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul was the gospel of grace. Whenever he sensed the gospel, was being domesticated, tamed, diluted, distorted, lost, or perverted, his passions were aroused. 
Case in point is the letter to the Galatians. Some have said Galatians is a ticked-off version of Romans. He got to the point faster. Uh, in Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I mean, this was a short period of time. This church was already invaded by a group of people known as Judaizers who were basically telling the Gentile converts in order for you to have status, the status of a righteous person, you have to submit yourself to what? Circumcision and the Mosaic law. In other words, the gospel was Christ plus what? Yeah. Christ plus works. The works of the law. And so Paul was livid. I mean, you could see the veins bulging in his face and neck as he's writing this. I mean, he is upset. The gospel that the Galatians were in danger of, of, of uh, turning to was, in fact, a desertion of the Father and the grace of Christ who gave himself for us. Therefore, that gospel is not good news. Paul calls down a curse on the preaching of any gospel contrary to the one he received. And I wonder how Paul might react to the evangelical church in Western culture today. The gospel is always in danger of being lost, and that was what Paul uh, was tuned up about in this situation. So does justification still matter? Um, once upon a time, the label evangelical, uh, identified those who were committed not only to historic Christianity, but also the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In our day, however, that can no longer be taken for granted. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I was a pastor in a Southern Baptist church for about nine years, maybe, off and on. And uh, number one, I never heard a sermon on justification by faith, ever. Ever. Not one. I didn't even know what it was. I preached for nine years, and only the last three did I understand what it was, because I was in seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary. But I can think of churches I was a member of all through the years, churches I attended, whether they were Bible churches, evangelical churches, whatever, you never heard the term justification by faith, ever, not once. And I think back on that and think, why? And uh, increasingly, evangelical scholarship is challenged by trends of biblical studies. I attach to your packet two of the most dangerous attacks on justification that are present tense happening in reform circles. Okay? One of them is the federal vision. And you will just need to sit down and read that. I can give you the short story on that. Basically, it's Doug Wilson's. Uh, also goes back to um, Norman Shepard, which basically believes that you get in the covenant through baptism and you stay in the covenant by what? Faithfulness that justification is both by faith and faithfulness. And so if you're not faithful after faith, 
then you fall out of the covenant. Now, it's more involved than that. That's why I gave you the paper to read. The other one is called the NPP, or the New Perspective on Paul. And that one, I believe, is written by Brian Chappell, who was a wonderful PCA pastor, who was the roommate of Bentley Rayburn. I don't know if any of you were here when Bentley Rayburn was at our church. He was a general in the Air Force. And uh, he didn't like much about the way we did things here because he grew, he grew up in a very traditional church. He hated praise songs. He just hated them. And his kids would sing them all the way to church because they <laughs> loved them. And every time he told me that, I'd laugh. We were good friends. We just had some difference. I loved the guy. I thought he was a great man. Great man in every way. We just had some difference. I don't know why I brought him up. But... Um, yeah, he was a roommate of Brian Chapel. Yeah. So I got to know Brian Chapel through knowing Bentley, what have you. And Brian Chapel's just a great, he's my age, he's a great guy. Um, and a great pastor in the PCA. I think he's retired now, I believe, but he's still real active in ministry. He'll never stop. But back to the uh, matter at hand, the new perspective on Paul basically says, we fell for the Reformation approach to the doctrine of justification all because of Martin Luther. Therefore, Martin Luther has shaped our understanding and interpretation of the book of Galatians and the idea of justification. And therefore, biblical studies have gone way past what Luther was equipped and able to do. And therefore, what the book of Galatians is about is not works righteousness. The book of Galatians is about what are called uh, identity markers. And it's basically arguing that it wasn't arguing that the Judaizers were legalistic and preaching works righteousness. It's arguing that full status could be uh, and community markers were relativized in a way. In other words, it's a half truth, but it ignores the major truth. And if you read the paper, you'll get it. But this is to read on your own time. I encourage you to read it just to be aware. And of course, there's always been the Lutheran and Catholic uh, joint declaration on justification and evangelicals and Catholics together have revised and relativized the key article. By the way, the NPP, New Perspective on Paul, has been hailed as a way for Protestants and Catholics to get together because we're getting rid of what? Which is the sticking point with what? Our Catholic friends. Because for Catholics, this is sanctification. Sanctification is your justification. We're going to talk about sanctification next week. Uh, it can't be separated, but it can be distinguished from justification. But all of these things are happening. And then you have the emergent church. How many of you are aware of the emergent church? You are? You are? Yeah, they're the hip-hop happening Not old, old fuddy duddies, uh, like me. Uh, and so, it's no longer taken for granted that because of these movements, uh, the criticism of justification and the reform confessions have been criticized even now by, uh, conservative churches. Uh, outright criticism of the doctrine of justification is as it is defined in our Reformed Confessions and Catechists, has become common in conservative churches. 
Most people in the pew, however, are not acquainted with the doctrine of justification. Often, it's not a part of the diet of the preaching in church life, much less a dominant theme in the Christian subculture. With either stern rigor or happy tips for better living, fundamentalists and progressives alike smother the gospel in moralism. If I was preaching moralistically, how would I be preaching? There's something in the New Testament called the imperative and something called the indicative. And imperatives flow out of indicatives. So if you don't ground people in the gospel before you give them a command, what will they do? Yes, they will revert to legalism and become moralistic and the imperative will swallow up the indicative and the gospel no longer works. And so I can remember when I was a young preacher, I thought I'd preached a successful person when pe sermon when people would come to the back door and say, you stepped all over my toes today, Pastor. But I, I, I think I've told you before that my father gave me the most damning comment when he said, well, I listened to you, son. And he said, you got me lost real good. He said, but you never got me saved. And uh, that was a man who was no theologian. <laughs> I mean, no theologian. He couldn't tell you what the word just... He'd never heard of the word justification, but he did understand the gospel, oddly enough. He understood we needed grace. And he understood my preaching was without much grace. And so moralism now is sort of the thing. That's why I put in your packet my little diatribe on it, the poison of moralism, for you to read on your own time, because we have so much material to cover here. But we're getting close. Moralism replaced the gospel. Arminianism also was ushered in. A new legalism arose, something called neonomianism. Have you ever heard of neo? What does neo mean? And what is nomos? So they turn the gospel into what? New law. Right. Right. Now that you're saved, your responsibility is to be obedient, and God will be pleased if you obey. And if you don't obey, then you're probably not saved. Right? Uh, that's how I used to say it. Uh, so people in the pew were, were smothered the gospel was smothered through moralism, though constant exhortations to people and or social transformation that keep the sheep looking to themselves rather than looking outside of themselves to Christ. Even in many churches formally committed to the Reformation teaching, people may find the doctrine of justification in the back of their hymnal in the confession section, but it is, is it really taken seriously in the teaching, preaching, worship life of the congregation? The average feature article in Christianity Today or Christian bestseller is concerned with good works, trends in spirituality, social activism, church growth, and discipleship. However, it's pretty clear that justification is simply not on the radar. People don't want to study. They don't know what it is. They don't know how valuable it is. So they don't get into it. And all, by the way, when the gospel 
is not central. There's a vacuum. And rot rushes in to fill the vacuum. Everything I just read to you. Those things become preeminent. And so when you see churches that have to, have you ever been around these churches where they got to have a new uh, gimmick? They got to have a new thing you know, like every three months. I mean, it's a dog and pony show. It's the circus game. And uh, the reason why they have 500 people on staff is they got to keep it going. They got to feed the beast. And so a lot of mega churches, and I don't want to be mean about it because I'm sure we do things that are just as nasty. We don't see it maybe. But uh, a lot of mega churches are, you know, 40 miles wide and a half inch deep and proud of it. And uh, they're just, if they can keep them coming in the front door faster than they're going out the back door, that's success. Did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so... The gospel is displaced. I'll give you an example. I once interviewed for a church planning position in Memphis, Tennessee, and I knew some of the people because I grew up near there. And this PCA is a pretty small world when you get down to it, so I knew most of the people interviewing me and talking to me. A guy named Sandy Wilson and some others. They're good people, good men. And so I went through the interviewing process, and they said, "Well, we're interested in planning a church in Memphis." that focuses on racial reconciliation. And so I listened to what they had to say. And I thought, well, you do know I'm white. (laughs) And they said, yeah. And I said, well, it seems to me, if you were to ask me to plant a church on racial reconciliation, I would just have to come in and plant a very gospel-centered church. Because the only thing that's ever going to bring the races reconciliation is unity in the gospel. And overcoming our both of our self-righteousness and our victimhoods and all of that kind of stuff. And so I said all that, and guess what? I didn't get the job. <laughs> that wasn't what they wanted to hear. By golly, a year later, they hired a guy, and I saw what they wrote as their philosophy of ministry, and it was exactly what I said. <laughs> word for word. Now, the reason I didn't get that job is God wanted me to come back here. And I'm glad I... I uh, I was, well, I'm blessed, but I, I was getting the willies being around some of these people because <laughs> I don't want to be that way. All right. Although it's been said in various ways by the reformers, it was the early 17th century reformed theologian J.H. Alsted who identified the doctrine of justification as the article of the standing and falling church. Yet, by the next century, Protestant denominations that had sealed this confession with martyr's blood were gradually surrendering it to various forms of moralism that were rife in the era of the Enlightenment, and in many cases worse than the distortions that provoked the Reformation in the first place. What happened in the Enlightenment? It became what? Simply put, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And you don't need no Jesus for that. And so it became religion. It really did. And Arminianism gained strength, a new legalism. Uh, we talked about that last week. Uh, there was a real suspicion to the doctrine of election and justification. And so I'm just giving you a little church history lesson here. 
Wesley became uh, convinced that the residual Calvinism in the Church of England stood in the way of a genuine revival of inner piety and committed discipleship. Although he eventually came to embrace the doctrine of justification, he remained concerned that it would lead to license unless it was subordinated to sanctification, which means what? Not emphasized. Now, I grew up under a tradition that emphasized not this, but sanctification. Okay? Sanctification was everything. Progress was everything. Pietism, becoming holy, was everything. But you know what I discovered about myself? I was more self-centered then than I was when I was an unbeliever. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, once you realize that Christ has taken care of everything in your relationship with God, it frees you up to look around and see other people need help and you've got the energy and time to do it because you're not trying to win God's approval. So you're really released in freedom to love your neighbor once you understand justification the way you're loved that. That's a brilliant insight, and I think it's true. And so a lot of my sanctification early on, we'll talk about this next week, early on was basically um, self-absorbed navel-gazing. was pretty much when taking my spiritual pulse every day to see how am I doing. Does God like me today? In most days it was no. <laughs> I'm not doing well. Now, one last guy I want to talk about. We had the Great Awakening, which never made it out west, by the way. And then we had the Second Great Awakening, which never made it out west, by the way. Wonderful the second one didn't. Mississippi River. <laughs> You'll study church history, that's what happened. Now, the uh, who tried to do something about that were the Cumberland Presbyterians. Because what they did was violate a cardinal Presbyterian rule. What was that? They didn't educate their clergy. They just told them, get in the wagon and go. Everybody else is beating us. The Methodists, the everybody else is heading west. My point is, the first Great Awakening, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, et al., was far more um, faithful to the doctrines of the Reformation in the system of the Reformation, whereas the Second Great Awakening was the uh, arrival and rising of who? Finney. Charles Finney. Who, by the way, had no theological training or uh, he must have been a charismatic guy. That's all I can say. But Finney, the church then became a society of moral reformers and its leading evangelist was Charles Finney, how could there be any genuine transformation of society if Calvinism was true? Finney's critics charged him with Pelagianism. We talked about that last week, if you all remember. The ancient heresy that essentially taught that we are not born inherently sinful and that we are saved by following Christ's moral example, going well beyond Rome's errors, Finney's systematic theology, which is neither systematic nor a theology, explicitly denied original sin, insisted that the power of regeneration lies in the sinner's own hands, rejects any notion of a substitutionary atonement in favor of the moral influence and the moral government theories, and regarded the doctrine of justification by imputed righteousness 
as impossible and absurd. And so there's a difference between revival and revivalism. Revival was what Jonathan Edwards was about. Revivalism is what Finney's about. And so, concerning the complex doctrines that are associated with Calvinism, including original sin, vicarious atonement, justification, supernatural character, the new birth, Finney concluded no doctrine is more dangerous than this to the prosperity of the church and nothing more absurd. A revival is not a miracle, he declared. In fact, there is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. Find This guy was very influential. Find the most useful methods, excitement, sufficient to induce conversion, and there will be conversion. A revival will decline and cease, he warned, unless Christians are frequently reconverted. Theobaptists, rededicate your life. I don't know if you ever went to a Baptist church, but when they give the invitation and sing, just as I am, 12 times, and nobody would come up front, then they would say, I feel someone here needs to rededicate them. And then you'd have like 20 people come up then, because everybody wanted to go home. Let's go on and get up there. We'll sing all night. And so they'd rededicate their life. I, I didn't realize that was a finny thing. Uh, toward the end of his ministry, he considered the condition of many who had experienced his revivals. Finney wondered if this endless craving for even greater experiences might lead to spiritual exhaustion. In fact, his worries were justified. The area where Finney's revivals were especially dominant is now referred to by historians as the burned-over district, a seedbed of both disillusionment and proliferation of various cults. Ever since evangelicalism has been characterized by a succession of enthusiastic movements held as revivals, they have burned out as quickly as they spread. Paul could easily say today of American Protestantism what he said to his brethren according to the flesh, I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This right here, you have to submit to what? Christ? That's a kind of road, don't get upset. <laughs> righteousness. Which means what? You got to repent of that. You got to repent of that. All right. Uh, sure. Yeah, it is. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. If it works, it's good. Yeah, it's a lot of manipulation. That's a great, that's a good insight, Richard. Thank you for that. But that's ex, ex uh, sure. Well, they thought they were getting it right. That's what deception is. You believe the lie, you can't see through it. By the way, I just want to take time for a moment since we are talking about justification. 
to sort of tell you what it is. But I'll do that more so in the next lecture. Tonight I just wanted to sort of lay the groundwork for what we're doing. I know there's an eraser on the very back back here. And so justification by faith is the article by which the church stands or falls. And I want to talk about the, the simplest way that I remember justification when I'm talking to people about it is this phrase, double, double toil and trouble? No, double imputation. Okay, so what's double imputation? It's an exchange, the great exchange. Christ... My sin is imputed to Christ, and he is treated the way I should be treated, and he literally dies and experiences my hell on the cross, right? And then the other imputation is what? It's righteousness, something outside of you. Alien, Luther called it. Alien meaning it's not something you produce, achieve, or work. It is something that is total gift. It's outside of you. And it's uh, imputed to you so that you are now treated by God as Christ deserved to be treated because of what? We're all, another way to look at it is uh, covenant theology. I'm sure Dan, when he taught on covenant, had to go red here, uh, covenant of works, right? Covenant of works is a covenant that requires what? Obedience, personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, and you're in. You achieve what? You meet the conditions to be received by God. Jesus kept the covenant of works for himself? No, for us. Why was Jesus baptized for heaven's sake? Why did he undergo the baptism of repentance when he never sinned? Yes, it was for us. Everything he did, he did for us. And so justification is double imputation. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It is uh, according to the Westminster... Larger Catechism, question 70. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them, that would be regeneration, or done by them, works, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. And so that's the gospel. And so that is absolutely counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, who would have ever come up with this? You know? But how can I stand judgment before a God who is absolutely holy, absolutely knows everything about me, doesn't need to read anything to figure out what I've been up to, 
who is omniscient, who knows everything. Every, he knows me from tip of my head to the sole of my feet. What? How does a person ever able to enter into a relationship with God unless this happens? It's impossible. Now, people are so afraid of this. What is the, the automatic knee-jerk reflex to this? What's the charge? If you preach this to people, they'll have no incentive, will have no leverage to get them to do what? Ever come to church again? <laughs> Obey God. You know, the, the insistence is they got nothing invested. The real truth is that the other way, the works righteousness way, the self-righteousness way, ends up exhausting people. Because if they're really honest, they know they're not getting there. And if they think they're doing okay, they're smug and full of pride. And if they know they're not getting that, that way, they, they're full of despair and hate themselves, and filled with self-loathing. But this double imputation means that God has declared it's, it is not a process, it is an event, it is a legal verdict. We're not waiting on the jury to come back in. The jury came back in when Christ was raised from the dead, right? Uh, he was delivered up for our transgressions, raised again for our justification. And so the jury's already in, our judgment has already happened. Uh, it's been moved forward eschatologically in time. We are forever under his favor, right with God. We are adopted into his family. The Holy Spirit is the gift Abraham looked for and ultimately came through believing God and having it counted unto righteousness. And so this, this doctrine of justification is what completely turned the world upside down. Turn the world upside down. And it still does when people get it. Now, let me see how much more I want to say. Because I'm, I'm about... Oh yeah, sola bootstrapus. Have you ever heard of that? Save yourself. Uh, Self-salvation strategies. Those are just ways in which we avoid... One other thing I want to talk about is the danger of virtue, and I will close with this. Um, and this is another article I wrote in the way back. I started reading these again. I said I probably should put them together in a book form. I might. Uh, your initial impression on reading uh, the title of this article might have been, has he lost it? The danger of virtue. Isn't that what religion is all about? Isn't morality and being good the whole point of religion? Religion, yes. Christianity, no. Christianity is not morality. It's not. It's not. It's Christ. <laughs> Let us look at the Apostle Paul's case in point. Paul, before Christ, when he was measured by the standards of this world, was a moral paragon, a virtuous man. Listen to his claim in Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. First king Saul came from there. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
What a resume he had, right? That's pretty impressive. A great spiritual resume. And uh, he had a uh, powerful religious pedigree. He was the Mother Teresa of his time, so to speak. Uh, he claims that he had righteousness that according to the law was blameless. And yet when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his self-understanding experienced a radical transformation. Paul discovered that all of his righteousness, virtue, and goodness were in reality obstacles and barriers to knowing the real God, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Virtues became vices. This is what he's saying. My virtues became vices. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There it is. There it is. Now the word for rubbish, this is a little humor here, is the word... Scuba love. Anybody know what that word means? It's translated rubbish. What does this word mean? I'm going to be nice. Poo poo. <laughs> Except, yeah. Yeah. I'm being nice. You can say poo. In other words, it's feces literally what it is. And it's also a word that would be scandalous. So yes, it is the word you're thinking. Because <laughs> you're impure. That's why. But, but that's what Paul says. I, I remember a guy in my presbytery getting up and preaching on this. And when it came to this, he said, Paul considered a pile of... And he used that word. And I, I was sitting there and it just almost like a tidal wave hit us all. <laughs> Nobody had ever said that word in a Presbytery meeting. And he was my best friend, Jeffrey Lancaster. And uh, I think he was, and so after the thing, I went up and I said, did you realize what you said? And he said, well, it's in the Bible. I said, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but that's Paul's record. Um, and so... Let me see if there's anything else I need to hit. I've already preached on a lot of this. Therapeutic, pragmatic, consumerist categories, that is, uh, uh, what is it, deistic, moral, moral, deistic, what is it? Yeah. Yes. Okay, some of this actually, uh, especially the latter part talking about sanctification, will be addressed next week. Okay, guys, do you have any questions? Because that's really what I wanted to get to you. It may not be like any lecture you've ever had on justification before, but what I'm trying to do when I started out with the self-righteousness is show you that now what people really long for in this world is validation. We need... As people, we feel we need validation because we know what? We're lacking something, right? None of us is perfect. None of us has it all together. Uh, we may have dreamed we had it all together, but we woke up. So, you know, 
that's where we are. But here's the point. Um, um, and so there's a, a passion to count, my life to matter, to be validated. Let's say that um, I was invited to preach in a church and all of the people that I have loved, held in high regard and esteem were sitting in front of me and I preached that message and they all came up, up and, and hugged me and told me that was a great sermon because it pointed to Christ, it was clear about the gospel, blah, blah, blah. I would feel what? Very good, very validated by that. But think of this. When you're justified, who validates you? God. Now, I might be overwhelmed with some of my heroes who've been great preachers of the faith, Spurgeon, uh, R.C. Sproul, um, Sinclair Ferguson. He's still alive, though. Some of them are. But these are guys that I've just, like, I love. I love to hear them preach. That would have made me found. But to think about if you know who God is. Justification is his validation upon you. You have righteousness that matters because you're united to Christ by faith. And it all depends on who validates you. And since God validates us, what does that do? It causes us to what? To rest. And then it energizes us to what? Serve with gratitude. And the problem is, you want to burn out in ministry or in the church, just forget the gospel. And it won't take long. And by the way, I've held every job you can have in the church. I actually ran a nursery for a year in Texas. I was a church janitor for two years in Texas. And so I've done all those things. Uh, I've taught children. I've taught youth. I was a, used to lead youth retreats. I've done college ministry. I've done senior citizen trips in ministry. And, uh, you know, they're the most fun, I think. Senior citizen. Oh, I love going on trips with them because they're just, they, they know what it means to have a good time because they know they ain't long for this place. <laughs> all right. <laughs> 